Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... Brexit, post-truth, hygge, lemium. We'll hear some of the new words 2016 has brought us, and our language columnist will explain why they've come about. I think confirmation bias and network effects together gave us the phenomenon of fake news, people willing to believe something that was too good to be true because it told them something that they wanted to believe. We're joined by Vishal Sika, the chief executive of Infosys, a large Indian technology services company, to learn how artificial intelligence might spread into the global workplace. I see a a future in which AI technology, automation technology, really amplifies the effect of people and enables us to do more. More on that later. Also, we'll hear about a new device that exploits the age-old technique of using smell to detect illness. They were able to build a device that's able to detect 17 diseases total. And the technology's pretty sleek, in fact. But first, we'll take one last glance back at the absolutely horrid year that was 2016. It was a surprising 12 months, to say the least, in which abnormality became the new normal. World-changing decisions were made against a backdrop of populism, cyber warfare, and climate change. Little wonder we were at a loss for words to describe some of the bizarre events. In fact, we had to invent new words. Here to dissect them is Lane Green, the writer of The Economist's column on language called Johnson. Lane, welcome. Thank you. In your column this week, you select the finest new words of 2016. So what have you chosen? This year had a real crop of runners. At the top of the list are Brexit and the associated words with the Brexit phenomenon. Brexit was not the first portmanteau word with exit in there. That was, in fact, Grexit from a couple of years ago when it was possible that Greece would be bumped out of the Eurozone. Grexit never happened. Brexit did happen. Well, it's going to happen. Brexit means Brexit. And therefore, we're going to be talking about it for quite a few years, and it's going to go in history books. There's no doubt in my mind that Brexit is going to be in our lexicon for decades to come. That's great. So what else is on your list? In slightly less grim terminology this year, I picked two words that at least were just amusing. One is the Danish word hygge, which is a became a big publishing phenomenon here in Britain. About nine books have been either already published or planned for publication on this idea of hygge, which is the Danish idea of sort of coziness and relaxed happiness. Usually a fire is in the mental image and a cup of hot tea or maybe mulled wine. And Britain just went crazy over this phenomenon this year. And, and I've never seen so many books published on an obscure Danish word or obscure concept of any kind like this. As it happens, I go to Denmark quite frequently. My wife is Danish. And so I got to ask some Danes about this. And they feel that Britain has just got hygge all wrong. Hygge is about friendship. It's about coziness and in a relaxed, good time. But it has nothing really to do with mulled wine and a fireside. It has just as much to do with good dirty jokes and a cigarette and a beer and a bus shelter, just so long as there's that, that coziness, that ease, that sense of being with old friends and in good company. Spell it for our audience. It's H-Y-G-G-E, which is why a lot of people will say Higa or Higa or Huga, but it's Huga. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so lots of words are coming in and out of our audioscape. Behind it is a lot of science. As a language columnist, what have you seen over the years? 
What I think is happening with new words is that the cycle of growth and decay has sped up quite a lot. Uh, If you think about Twitter, nobody decides what the official hashtag for a phenomenon is going to be. But once one catches on, it spreads through Twitter incredibly quickly and it pretty much kills off all of the other competing hashtags. So within a couple of days or even a day, people are using the same hashtag to talk about the Green Revolution in Iran or Black Lives Matter. And once the hashtag becomes quasi-official, even though no one has ever chosen it officially, it has spread faster than any word could have spread before this kind of technology. And so the same goes for slang and new concepts. Two of my words of the year, and we can talk about them in a moment, are post-truth and fake news. And for a time, nobody was using those words, and then suddenly everyone was using them. And in the old days of literal word of mouth, when you had to have heard them said and then said them to someone else, obviously that cycle just took quite a lot longer. Now with social networks, they just spread perhaps faster than wildfire because these things literally spread through the speed of light through fiber optic cables. So let's end on fake news and post-truth. This seems to be a real vestige of digital media. Yes, I think it's absolutely a vestige of digital media, but it does piggyback on pre-existing concepts that we have to describe some of these phenomena. I think two of them that strike me are the idea of network effects, uh, which means that things will spread through networks very strongly and pre-existing networks tend to reinforce themselves. Companies will tend to hire people like the people they've already hired because the people they have on the staff will recommend their friends and those friends will tend to be like those people. And so existing features of a network tend just to strengthen over time. And this is exactly how people get only conservative news or only liberal news because they're only friends with people who share those views. And then things like Facebook's algorithm, which finds out what you like and feeds you more of it, very strongly tends to push that effect even more. And so network effects is an old concept, but it's a very useful one to bear in mind. And the other thing that psychologists are well aware of is confirmation bias. We tend to look for and like news that confirms what we already thought. And it's incredibly important to know that everyone does this. Even the psychologists themselves know that they are susceptible to it. Everybody is susceptible to confirmation bias. So at least if you have this concept in your sort of conceptual toolkit, then you can try to either blind yourself to it in the case of designing an experiment, or you can try to break out of it by making sure that you expose yourself to things that you know you'll hate, that you know you'll disagree with. I think confirmation bias and network effects together gave us the phenomenon of fake news, people willing to believe something that was too good to be true because it told them something that they wanted to believe. And my word of the year, my choice was post-truth. And the reason I think that's the bigger and more important concept is because so many of the political memes of this year were not even really intended to be taken seriously. And Donald Trump in particular was a past master of this. He said things that were so outrageous, they were not even intended to be taken as facts or as serious statements by his audience. He said things like, no one respects women more than I do. This after a series of wildly misogynistic comments and a famous tape where he bragged about groping women. Now, this isn't actually intended to be taken as true. It was just one of those things that fills the air and makes his audiences laugh and just say, yes, he's on our team. He's done it again. And he said so many things like this. And they were so successful with his supporters that I'm really worried that other people will have seen how successfully he pulled this trick off. And the idea of trying to stay in the general postcode of the truth is is going to decline as politicians become a lot more like entertainers, where what, whether what they say is true simply doesn't matter like it used to be. 
Lane, before I let you go, I want to ask about one word of the year, which actually did not become a word of the year, related to science. Yes, well, as chemists and physicists are wont to do, every once in a while they'll get together and smash more atoms together until they get a new element, a bigger and heavier one than they've ever made before. And when they got to number 115, an official body, which is the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, has to decide what that new element will be called. Well, there was a proposal, because this is a super heavy metal, to call the metal Lemium after Lemmy, the bass player and singer of the band uh, Motorhead. And unfortunately, Lemium did not make it. I love the idea of a heavy metal called Lemium, but instead the researchers at a Moscow institute who had worked on it won the prize, and so it will be called Muscovium after the city of Moscow. And so join the list of a boring bunch of elements named after the places that they were discovered, like Berkelium and Californium and Europium and so forth. So it's a word that never happened, but in my mind, element 115 will always be Lemium. And 116, we can hope, will be a conistinium. Very good. <laughs> we'll see. Thanks a lot, Lane. Thank you. If you have any new words from 2016 that you'd like to share with the Babbage community of listeners and the team here at The Economist, please email them to radio at economist.com and be a part of the conversation. The idea of artificial intelligence has been around since computing first took off in the 1950s. However, the techniques are now leaving the computer science lab and going into business to solve practical problems in a way that just never happened before. How it will integrate into the workforce remains unknown. For AI to fulfill its promise, companies will need to change their processes and employees will need to change their skills. One company that hopes to lead the transformation is Infosys, the large Indian IT outsourcing company. With us to discuss its ambition and the potential of AI in the economy is Vishal Sika, the chief executive of the company, who happens to also have a PhD in artificial intelligence from Stanford. Hello, Vishal, and welcome. Hi, uh, Ken, it's great to be here. So my first question to you is, why is Infosys going into AI? The world around us is in a very fundamental and profound way being transformed by software and by digital technologies. And as those technologies have evolved, AI technologies have reached a point where many great applications of AI are now becoming feasible and, and viable, and companies are starting to understand and embrace these. So an AI-led transformation of businesses is becoming much more within our grasp. I'm really interested in the opportunities of what happens when we take the Indian IT services outsource model and marry it onto global business using AI. How do you see the world changing and how do you see businesses changing when they can get, if you will, low-cost access to AI technology? I see a, a future in which AI technology, automation technology, really amplifies the effect of people and enables us to do more. And when we look at that, that universe of jobs, there are two distinct dimensions to that. There are the jobs that we have had historically, which can increasingly be mechanized, and these can be done with a very small number of people with more intelligent systems. And then there are the jobs of tomorrow, which need our human ingenuity, the human creativity. And these are jobs that are still in front of us. Out of our 200,000 employees, 150,000 are software engineers. And we can really deploy them towards, on the one hand, bringing tremendous automation to the existing world of infrastructure and operations. And on the other hand, we can unleash their creativity, augmented by this AI technology, to, to build breakthrough new kinds of solutions. Michelle, I'm so happy that you brought up the jobs question because 
I can see a public relations catastrophe looming, and that is that there is a perception that in round one of IT globalization around the year 2000, it was the Indian IT services model that was destroying jobs in the West for software developers and others. And I'm sure you've thought through this idea that there is a belief that there's going to be workers in the first world who are going to lose their jobs as the system is built by Indian software developers who are doing AI and it's basically going to replace human labor. What is your response to that? The response is education. When we think about jobs, our universe, our our perception is governed by the jobs that we have seen so far. And uh, when we think about AI and the jobs that we have seen so far, we think of those jobs going away. But the reality is that the same AI technology that is taking away those jobs of the past is also creating completely new kinds of jobs of the future. And it is the nature of our brains that we don't see those. So technology is a more dynamic thing. It, it creates new opportunities, and we t- tend to not see those until they have happened. If we have the ability to help people tide over that transition to these new kinds of jobs, if we have the ability to educate people on these new kinds of jobs of the future, then AI will be a technology that amplifies us, not and a technology that displaces us. It looks like it's going to be a really difficult managerial task for you to transform Infosys itself to the world of AI. How do you plan to do that? We are talking about transforming from a cost-based delivery of value towards a delivery of value that is based on innovation. Because problems that are possible to articulate precisely can be done with systems, with AI systems. The human frontier is the identification of the problems, the problem finding, the exercising of our creativity and our ability to innovate. So we have been training people massively on design thinking, for example. Design thinking is a technique for helping us sort of systematize the act of innovation, the act of problem finding, need finding, and identifying empathy with people and creating solutions. So we have trained in the last two years 125,000 people on design thinking. That is one area. Teaching people en masse on uh, AI technologies uh, is another thing that we are doing. So the, the way I look at this, we have to go from a culture of doing what we are told, following what is inside the statement of work, and uh, mechanically doing that because we are cheaper than others, towards a world where we look at the opportunities around us and see what is not here, what is it that if we were to add to this mix would help improve things and really exercise our creativity and ability to innovate. Have you put any thought into what artificial intelligence means for trade and development? Of course, economic development in developing countries have relied on manufactured exports and international trade to move up the value chain. But if things are being done by robots and by algorithms, do we still need the low-cost labor that developing countries provide? I'm thinking of Africa and Latin America. Have you thought about that at all? Today's AI technology, so let's say over the next five years, is technology that can help people better connect the dots, help them identify patterns, help them see beyond the limitations of our our perception, and really amplify us. Uh, the kinds of things that AI really cannot do well today is uh, large-scale inferencing or a- application of common-sense reasoning, being able to achieve shared perspectives or uh, shared semantics across people, across cultures. So people's ability to be that glue, that uh, semantic enabler of communication and interaction and achieving shared perspectives is going to be key. You know, Marvin Minsky, one of the great founders of AI and a great teacher of my life, passed away earlier this year. 
And he had this wonderful joke in his book, uh, The Society of Mind, where he said, what has eight legs and flies? And the answer was a string quartet on a tour. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We are nowhere close to... uh, Uh, AI that can understand that joke, but, you know, any kid in Africa can. Michelle Sika there. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please take the time to give them a positive rating online and please share them with others on social media. As always, if you have any questions or comments about any of our journalism, you can reach us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Your feedback helps us to improve the show and we do read it all, so please do comment. Finally, doctors have long known about the benefit of using odor and a sense of smell to diagnose illness. Since ancient times, a quick sniff has helped doctors work out what is wrong with their patients. But a new device has resuscitated the idea for the 21st century and seems to be proving effective. The Economist science correspondent Matt Kaplan joins us now on the line with the story. Matt, what are some of the examples of diseases that can be detected simply by odor? So we've long known that if a diabetic patient has not enough insulin in their blood and they're building up too much sugar, which is a lethal condition, their breath starts to get this fruity odor to it. And that's long understood. And you don't need any kind of test to detect that because it's so obvious. Even the stupid human nose can pick it up. Where things vary a little bit is you have particles and and volatile compounds that are released on the breath that are related to specific diseases like breast cancer or bladder cancer or even things like multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's that we can't smell, but certainly technology that's been honed to pick up on these specific particles can detect it on the breath and then realize, wow, this person's got this disease and probably doesn't even know it yet. And the notion of actually having a technology that can do this is not new. We've had technology for years now where you can build a device that specifically picks up on the volatile organic compounds associated with bladder cancer, let's say. The thing that's difficult here is if we were to go down that path, we'd have a doctor's office that's loaded with a thousand different devices. It's just logistically not feasible. And that's where this new technology comes in. Because it is able to measure all of the diseases at once. Is that right? Well, we're not quite at the all of them yet. These researchers at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology said, well, wait a minute. Is it possible for us to weave together a bunch of the different systems and detect for multiple diseases. And they were able to build a device that's able to detect 17 diseases total. They're using organic films that either swell or aggregate. By aggregate, I mean their molecules bunch up when exposed to very specific volatile organic compounds. And it changes the degree to which they conduct electricity. And that means you have an electrical signal that can be related to whether or not a specific volatile organic compound is present. So are they simply taking what the human nose can detect and then putting it into a computing form, or are they doing something even more impressive than that? They're going further than that. They're going and looking at volatile compounds that our nose simply can't detect. And they're using it to detect the presence of specific diseases. And the device is working pretty well. Overall, it's getting things right 84% of the time. 
Now, I mean, in, in some cases, you've got diseases like head and neck cancer being distinguished from lung cancer, and it's able to do that 100% of the time. And in some cases, it's not able to distinguish so well, like with gastric cancer and bladder cancer, it only could distinguish between those two 64% of the time. And the false positive rate is pretty good too. Again, really, really low for a new device like this. So the potential for this to change diagnosis in a doctor's office is pretty huge. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read the articles we discussed today, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist. Don't forget you can get in touch via all of our social media channels and by rating our podcast on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.